this is Stephanie. This is Brian. And this is Nicole. Welcome to the making and the remaking of a codependent mind. For this episode, one aspect of codependency that we have not explored much in depth is how codependent behaviors show up in professional spaces. So we're going to be talking about that today, particularly about codependency in the helping or healing profession. And since Brian is not in a helping or healing profession, <laughs> he's an accountant, <laughs> which helps no one, Right. we have asked a guest, Nicole Piemonte, to help us explore that topic. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And by way of a very short introduction, I have had the great pleasure to know Nicole, both personally and professionally, for a number of years. And I know her as Nicole or, or Nikki, but she is in fact Dr. Nicole Piemonte, having earned her PhD in medical humanities, which is a field that explores the human dimensions of medicine. And she went on to write two books about the subject and has also worked in medical education for a number of years. And Nicole, Dr. Piemonte, has recently started a coaching practice for medical professionals. It doesn't explicitly focus on people struggling with codependency, but it seems to me that they would certainly benefit <laughs> from her work. Do you want to say a few words, Nicole, about that practice? Sure. Thank you for asking about the practice and you know, your mention of it's not necessarily focused on people who struggle with codependency, but as we're going to talk about, I think there's a lot of codependency in healthcare. And so naturally those things might come up. I've really found that very few people in healthcare, especially physicians, have a space to really reflect on what's happening to them, to talk about suffering and pain and the joy that comes with being in medicine and, and seeing so much suffering and death and dying. And, you know, we have a burnout crisis in healthcare, and I'm hoping to just kind of create a space in my coaching practice, not as a replacement for therapy. I think there's a real need for therapy and a place for people to go in that direction. But for those who would rather kind of enter the coaching space, I, I want to kind of create a relationship that helps people find the courage to really slow down and look deeper, deeper at themselves, at their work, at their life, and to kind of move forward with new intention and purpose. And so I just open a space for people who are feeling stuck or numb or confused and want to move forward and kind of become a thinking partner alongside them. And I'm really excited to talk about kind of what that looks like, because, you know, even if our listeners are not in healthcare or not even in a helping or healing profession, they're almost all caretakers. <laughs> yes. And that's a very demanding and challenging way to live your life. So I think how you work with the people in your coaching practice, there are going to be things that, that our listeners can take away from that. Before we, we dive more a little more into that, can you talk a little bit about what brought you to this work? How did you end up yourself in the helping and healing profession? Yeah, it's, it's interesting you ask that because I think now that I have started the coaching practice, I finally feel that I am pursuing what I deeply want and that resonates with who I am. And ironically, my whole life, I don't think I've been pursuing that at all. While I went to school forever and was overachieving in a lot of ways, as someone who is a 
codependent in recovery, that journey was never really about me. I was doing what I thought I was supposed to do or what helped me avoid looking at myself, which was to continue to pursue education. And I will say, fortunately, very fortunately, I found a niche in academia that I think resonates with me deeply. Part of that is because when I was 19 and I was a college student, my mom was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and I was her caregiver. And I took care of her for two and a half years before she died. And it was one of those experiences that was confusing because no one was really talking about death and her physicians weren't talking about death, even though she was clearly dying. She was a nurse (laughs) and she wasn't unaware that her time was short. So to make sense of that, I was a master's student and I was trying to make sense of why that had happened, why no one was talking about death and dying and my mom ended up dying in a hospital instead of at home, which is where she would have wanted to have died. And I started to realize that we're not equipping very many clinicians to talk about end of life and suffering and death and dying. We're training physicians primarily in biological and technical knowledge that's beginning to shift. But that led me to eventually pursue a PhD in medical humanities, which is dedicated to bringing the humanities to medical education because we know that scientific training is not enough. And I'm grateful that that experience of suffering brought me to where I am now and eventually brought me to coaching where I get to kind of do that work one-on-one instead of in the curriculum, which is what I'd been doing for a long time in, in medical education. And it's one of those things where I think our suffering and brokenness, we can recreate meaning to be able to be present for other people in their suffering. And that's what I'm hoping to embody now on this next step in, in my career. Thank you for sharing that story about your mother. And it really strikes me that you had medical professionals that were to be caring for her. And I'm sure that they did. But it sounds like the whole situation also created trauma in both you and perhaps in her. That the the way that that care was delivered was also wounding as well as it was healing. I think that's a great insight because that's exactly what happened. And while people in healthcare and even patients and their families, they want to protect everyone. And you think you're protecting people by not talking about the hard stuff. I was trying to protect my mom. I didn't want to talk about death and dying either. And she wanted to protect me. And you've got these clinicians who also don't want to have hard conversations and don't want to cause you more pain. And so it creates this communication impasse and no one's talking about it. And yet it's always there. And that can be traumatic. Why would my mom's death be a surprise? Why was I surprised that, you know, she was in a hospital room and we think we're waiting for this, you know, bowel obstruction to, to resolve itself. And then suddenly They're asking if she wants to enroll in hospice, and they say she's going to live for a while longer, and then she dies eight hours later. Why would something like that happen? And it's because we wait until the 11th hour to have these hard conversations, and it's not, I don't think, 
malintended. No one's trying to cause harm. Everyone's trying to heal. (laughs) And then in medicine, we really struggle when we can't rescue people anymore. And we fail to have kind of nuanced conversations that mean that we can have healing even if curing isn't possible. What would have been healing for us? Maybe having open dialogue and my mom coming home and getting to have to make memories together. Maybe that's the kind of healing we needed. But there wasn't a space to talk about that. And so the surprise death was traumatic. Wow. Yeah. You know, it sounds like an institutional version of people pleasing and where the people in the profession are afraid to have these uncomfortable conversations because they're afraid of disappointing somebody or something. It's just too uncomfortable. And so they take this other path where it's like, well, I'm just going to give you this kind of maybe, I don't know, false hope or some other kind of, I'm just going to try to make you feel good in this moment, as opposed to having one of these realistic conversations. It's interesting because I would imagine how I would behave and I would have a similar apprehension to talk about something difficult that may make people upset in the moment. I love how you put that, that institutional people pleasing. And I think that is what's going on. It's this idea that we don't want to disappoint people. And what's more disappointing than death? And I love to humanize the clinicians, especially my mom's doctors. I think initially I was angry that a conversation didn't happen. But when you put yourself in their shoes, like you just did, Brian, you can understand the very human desire to not confront something so impossibly hard and that we want to continue to give people hope. So when I teach my medical students and I I try to teach them along with my palliative care colleagues how to have these conversations at the end of life because as I mentioned before, we don't really educate them in how to do that. They really struggle with, well, I don't want to dash hope and aren't you just giving up if you have these conversations? And so that in and of itself is not wanting to let people down. What do you do when you can't fix them anymore? And far too often in medicine, when we can't fix and rescue anymore, we start to avoid. And you've noticed over your career a tendency for the people who are attracted to helping and healing professions to have a need to fix. Yes. I suppose I always knew that the kind of undercurrent of medical education. The curriculum is focused on biological intervention and fixing and curing. And I knew that about the curriculum, but I hadn't quite noticed the people who were drawn to the health professions until I really started to kind of unpack my own issues with codependency. The same time as I was doing that, I was also the dean of students for a medical school where we had an incoming class of of medical students and getting to know them and having relationship with them, I did start to notice a pattern. Can you talk a little bit about that? What 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 were you seeing in yourself in terms of codependency that you started to also notice in these medical students? Yeah. So as I mentioned, I started working on my own co- codependency, which I didn't realize I struggled with codependency until a couple of years ago. Now, this is something I probably should have known. I have a long therapy journey, which started, you know, after my mom died. And I did some therapy after that. And then about eight years later, 
my dad was diagnosed with terminal stomach cancer. And I hadn't been seeing a therapist for a while. And I realized I need to go talk to a therapist because I can't do this. I can't go through this again. So I contact a therapist to say, help me. I want to be present for my dad, but really I want to run away because this is so hard. So I think I'm going to therapy for that. And this was a therapist who was trauma-informed in her practice. And, you know, we start to unpack the fact that I had been fairly enmeshed with my mom, not only caretaking for her when she was sick and dying, which is what I wanted to do, and I would have done that anyway, but really looking at how I had been kind of rescuing her my whole life. My dad was, I didn't realize until I started going to therapy and I'm, you know, 30 years old, I didn't realize that my dad had been fairly kind of majorly emotionally and verbally abusive to us for as long as I can remember. And even as a little teeny girl, I became hypervigilant of trying to be aware of when my dad might have an explosion. And then also kind of parenting my mom, who was an angel on earth. She really was, but very kind of submissive and had a, you know, generational trauma, history of abuse growing up. And I think kind of saw that as normal. So I've got this years of trauma that I didn't know that I had (laughs) that this therapist is helping me recognize and name. And then, you know, my mom dies, my dad dies. It's kind of this perfect recipe for codependency. I've got these abandonment wounds and this childhood trauma. So I start to recognize then that, all right, I've got this history of trauma and I am someone who is hypervigilant and and can, can people please. And I was addicted to rescuing my mom. But it wasn't until years after that, <laughs> a few years after that, that I started to recognize how the codependency was showing up in my personal relationships, my romantic relationships, my work relationships. And the two kind of romantic relationships I was in in my life, one for 10 years, one for eight, both ended traumatically, you know, with feeling that my partner had betrayed me and I still wanted to rescue and fix those people and I didn't want them to leave me. And it wasn't until then. So a couple of years ago that I realized my coping mechanisms that I am complicit in. It makes me feel good to rescue people. I don't have to look at myself if I'm rescuing someone. I don't think about my needs or wants or desires when I'm preoccupied with another person. I'm not loving them vulnerably. I was complicit in the destruction of these relationships because of my codependency and my desire for these people not to abandon me. And it was then that I said, this is not working. Something is not working. Why am I in this pattern over and over and over again where I'm just living my life for another person? And it's a form of control. People-pleasing is inherently selfish. You're people-pleasing not to be nice to this other person, but to kind of control their reactions to you. And that's when... I started to see, I don't know, the third therapist of my life, and she changed my life. And I'm so grateful for her. 
So she had me read Codependent No More. I had never heard of being codependent, didn't know what she was talking about. And she gently recommended Codependent No More by Melody Beatty to me. And I, I read the book and it was in that book where she mentions almost in passing. She says, many people, and she calls it the helping occupations, might struggle with codependency. And that resonated with me so much that, oh, you know, she mentioned social workers and teachers and nowhere else but in healthcare was I seeing people who were struggling with codependency. And I started to notice it in my own work. And a lot of my friends, I would say the vast majority, are in healthcare in various roles, some of them physicians. And I started to just see this over and over and over again that medicine in particular offers the most perfect place to deny yourself and rescue other people. And of course, there would be this certain archetype of people who were drawn to it. And some of the the younger medical students that I was seeing, you know, they're 22 years old and they come to their dean of student affairs when they're struggling. So they were coming to me and there was just this deep woundedness that I saw, that this kind of undercurrent of feeling unlovable or unworthy, and this thought that maybe becoming a doctor would fix that, would make them feel valuable and worthy, and they can spend their life helping other people and not really have to look at themselves. That's so fascinating. Man, why, where where was that idea for me? I totally would have gone into that. <laughs> you should have gotten into medicine. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like we, we use what we're good at. And if someone, first you have the trauma, and then you have the behaviors that you developed alongside the trauma, which are going to be different for everybody. And for you and for a lot of the people that go into this profession, it's these codependent behaviors. So I could see why they would gravitate towards that because it's like, wow, yeah, this is a way I can put what I think is a natural skill to use without really realizing you're burying yourself in it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, And I'm grateful that there are people who want to help others and spend a whole lifetime doing it. I mean, there's virtue in this if it doesn't come with radical self-neglect, which is what I can see happen. You think of residency training. It's like, years-long exercise in radical self-neglect. And that's where it becomes dangerous, that the desire to rescue and help and, and heal other people, it starts to conceal who people are. It conceals their wounds, which is a benefit. That's kind of a coping mechanism of someone with codependency. I don't have to look at my own woundedness. But I think people are losing themselves in the process, and that's what I worry about. And it also sounds like, in much the same way that we've talked about the ways in which codependent behaviors do not create intimate, lasting relationships, that they do not perhaps produce the best results in healthcare either, or whatever helping profession you're in. Because as we're talking about, the people-pleasing and the caretaking gets perverted to protecting, say, the doctors in this case. So with the case of, of your mother, when it came down to it, in terms of what did your mother need and what did you need from them, they were not able to give that to you because of perhaps their own need to protect who they thought they were and what they thought they needed to do in that situation. Yes, because I see what is happening is that when we're in the throes of codependency, it's impossible to be present. And what 
people need, whether that's our romantic partner or the people we love or a patient who is suffering, we need someone to just be undeniably present. And when we're fixated on either controlling outcomes or not hurting the other person, then it's hard to be really present, especially present in suffering and pain. We've also talked about quite a bit recently how narcissism and codependency seem to share similar roots, both as reactions to and strategies for dealing with trauma and traumatic events in one's life. I'm bringing this up because there is a stereotype of doctors as well as being kind of narcissistic. Have you witnessed maybe that duality in in the people that you work with? Yes, absolutely. You know, and that's one of the things that's so wonderful about medicine is it's undeniably human. And you see the whole gamut of kind of the human condition. And, and I don't want to necessarily say that most or all of the people drawn to medicine take on this caretaking role and struggle with codependency. But what I've been surprised by is that the stereotype of the narcissistic physician has unraveled for me as I've been working with clinicians and teaching them and getting to mentor them and then coach them now. That's not really what's going on for the most part. And I've even had, you know, some of our medical students, I had the entire second year class take the Enneagram, which I love. It's an assessment that kind of gets at the core of who we are. I would say 85% of the class were Enneagram twos and threes, who are the people who struggle with codependency, people pleasing, and feelings of worthlessness. Wow. Almost the whole class. So what I see is less of someone who's narcissistic being drawn to medicine and more of people who want to help and take care of. And then they're kind of chewed up by this system (laughs) and coping mechanisms become even more pronounced for some of them. And the whole system is kind of abusive. (laughs) It's awful. I think people don't get a chance to kind of heal wounds and to flourish. I hope that they that we're creating spaces where people can now, because what a beautiful thing to get to take care of people who need you and are vulnerable. Like it's the greatest job on the planet, but I think we're intensifying people's wounds instead of healing the healer. Let's talk about your practice at this point, because that's the work you're engaged in now, which also sounds like a, one of the best jobs in the world. And then I'm, I'm so glad you're out in the world doing it. What does that look like for people? So, and if, you know, if they don't have access to someone like you, is some of that work that you do with others and for others, is there some of that work that people can do for themselves? Yeah, that's a, a really great question. And I think that, you know, we've all talked about things like quiet quitting and, and, People in medicine and, you know, nursing are kind of leaving the profession in droves and so many physicians want to leave. And I think people have had enough. I think we're at a tipping point where people are ready to find themselves. I hope, I hope that that's what's going on. So I think there is a inevitably going to be more attention to this. Now, Coaching is is one way to help. You know, research shows that it contributes to diminishing burnout and helps people kind of reconnect to meaning and purpose. 
And I hope that that's something that I'm able to do one-on-one with clinicians who are struggling. You know, it's hard because rescuing people can be addictive and workaholism is especially prevalent in medicine. And then there's that big gaping wound that we were talking about before. And I I do want to share very recently, I was, you know, just watching some of Gabor Mate's talks because that's kind of what I do for fun. And I think he's amazing. And as many of you know, you know, he's a doctor and he had a career in family medicine and palliative medicine. Palliative medicine is just full of really special people who are willing to look at suffering and death. That's the medicine that's delivered as people are dying. Yes, hospice and palliative care for people who have serious chronic or terminal illnesses. And we've got a group of clinicians who intentionally enter that kind of clinical world, which is amazing. You know, I worry about them sometimes too, even though they're not rescuing in the same way, you can't rescue anyone from death. They're not rescuing and fixing the biological body. But I do worry. I mean, that's incredible work, but that they can lose themselves in that too. There's so much you have to give in that world. And it's no surprise to me that Gabor Monte was in that world for a while. And I had been thinking about these things for a couple of years. And I, you know, I'm just the other week I'm watching his videos and and he says something that I I just want to take a second to quote what he says. He says, if you're not wanted, medical school is a great way to make yourself wanted because you're offering something very important to people. When they're in crisis, they want you all the time. It's very addictive because there's a hole inside you where you should be, and you're trying to fill it all the time from what you get from the outside. So it's never enough. The more you get, the more you want. Says So therefore, I'm addicted to working. And the more workaholic of a physician I am, the more the world thinks I'm wonderful. I get all this reinforcement from being disconnected from myself. And of course, you know, he beautifully captures in 10 seconds what I've been thinking about for so long. Well, and then that very sentence, it's very addictive. And it doesn't matter what the it is, right? That's right. (laughs) It could be sex, love relationships whatever it is, it's very addictive because there's a hole inside you where you should be and you're trying to fill it all the time from what you get from the outside. I mean, that is also a very nice summation of codependency. Yeah, that's it. That's codependency perfectly summarized. And he's saying, you know, medical school and medical practice is the perfect place for that. (laughs) It's the perfect place for it. You know, not to mention the fact that Statistically speaking, physicians do struggle with addiction and they have among the highest rates of suicide. Like they are struggling, they are in pain, and they need healing just as much as some of their patients need healing. My hope with coaching, at least, is really getting not necessarily to the bottom of the the wounding. I think a therapist would be more equipped than me or any of my coaching colleagues to kind of address those deep wounds, but it's a space to start really doing some deep reflection, to slow down, to try to identify emotions. And really it's about bringing awareness. So I work with so many clinicians who haven't had the opportunity to articulate out loud what they feel, why they feel it, and to even 
recognize the emotions going through their body. And anyone who struggled with codependency, myself included, if you had asked me what I felt, I couldn't tell you. Or what do I think? What are my dreams? I don't know. It's whatever the other persons are. Right. Or at, at the very most, you can say, I feel good. <laughs> yes, I feel fine. <laughs> I feel fine. Yeah, that's probably yeah, the, fine. The, right. the, Somewhere the, in the biggest one. Every, everything's fine. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. And that's what, when, when you were talking at, at the beginning of this conversation, that's what it sounded like was missing, was that there's no emotion being conveyed because I feel like these people are lacking their own emotional intelligence. And it sounds like part of their training encourages that disconnect mm. rather than the opposite. It validates that they should be disconnected from their emotion. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so we conflate all the time. Like, what does it mean to be a professional? Oh, I, you know, I've got to have a level of detachment in order to be professional. If I were to show emotion with a patient, that would be unprofessional. And I've yet to talk to a patient who's been suffering and they feel the suffering of their doctor and even a doctor who cries with them. They would never describe them as unprofessional. But there's this sense that I have to remain objective. I have to remain detached. Compassion fatigue is real. I don't want to say that it's not. Especially during COVID, watching people die alone over and over and over, compassion fatigue is absolutely real. But in the healthcare system that we are in, where our clinicians are asked to churn through patients in this factory-like kind of way, 15-minute appointments, it makes connection impossible. And I see burnout as what happens when you are disconnected from others and yourself all day long. It's not about feeling too much. It's about feeling nothing at all. And so how can we help clinicians recognize what they feel and to be able to feel with the people right in front of them? That's what's going to bring a meaningful, sustainable career not trying to turn inward and not feel anything at all. So a lot of the coaching practice is this reconnection with their emotional structures. Yes, I would say it's almost primarily what it is. If I have someone who might even be asked to get some coaching <laughs> because of some of the interpersonal encounters they have had, and it's recommended to them that they get some coaching, it's creating an environment where we can start to inquire where the reactions are coming from. And usually those reactions are coming from when they're made to feel incompetent or small or unworthy. It all comes back to the same thing. Where their trauma is triggered. That's right. That's right. And, and their codependent response is to shut down emotionally. Yes. So how do we reconnect people to their emotions? Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly what I found was one of the first things that got me really actually on the healing path was reconnecting with my emotions. And isn't it the hardest thing in the world? It is. If yeah. you've never done it, really, for most of your life, yeah, it's a steep learning curve. It really is because then it means I have to be angry and I'm not supposed to be angry because, right. you know, that risks people leaving me. And it feels really scary to reconnect or connect for the first time to the emotions that we are born with, but that we have 
willed away through our coping mechanisms. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that I, when I think of compartmentalization, you know, which is something I did constantly, and I've thought about, you know, oh, there's healthy versions of compartmentalization. People in professions like we're talking about here have to do it for their jobs. But I was also, when I, when I say that, I'm thinking, although that's not going to be very healthy for those people in the long run to just be doing that day after day after yeah, day. Yeah, compulsively and, or constantly. Or- yeah, and maybe that's not necessarily what they need to be doing to be successful at their profession. Yes, and there are moments where you know someone's coming in on a gurney in the trauma bay and you need to be either a trauma surgeon or an emergency doc who is able to disconnect from your emotions and do what needs to be done. There are moments in medicine, or gosh, I think about first responders when we think about our firefighters and our EMTs. Oh my gosh, you know, that's just trauma over and over and over again. And sure, they have to shut off to get you out of the car if you're a first responder. But then what? What what about later? And there are some new initiatives where they are creating opportunities for first responders to talk about this but they're few and far between and there's still a relative kind of stigma and hesitancy to process through that. But compartmentalization, I think, needs to happen in micro doses for people and then they need to be able to integrate that experience with who they are as a human, breathing, feeling human being. It's not a life strategy. Right. (laughs) (laughs) No. For some of us, it was a life strategy for decades, but then it stops working. And I think that's what we see in medicine is either during residency or later into a career, the coping mechanisms stop, they stop working and then they're in crisis. Well, it's so reassuring and gratifying for me to hear that you're out again in in the world, helping the people who we all rely on to help us to reconnect with themselves and, and to do caretake in a more robust way that both enriches their lives and also gives us the care that we all need. Mm-hmm. It's moving work that you're doing, Nicole. And and I think that, again, a lot of the listeners, not necessarily even in the medical profession, will, will absolutely hear themselves in, in the struggles that the people in medicine are having. Yeah, you know, I, I hope that that's true. And as a listener myself, so many of us, the listeners of this podcast, have been self-sacrificing for so long. And I think that shows up in our work. And so the question becomes, how do we continue to do that work in the helping professions while also taking care of ourselves? In my coaching training, one of the faculty had said, you know, in coaching, you just you just got to love them. You're just there to love them. And I hope that I can offer some love back to people who might have not felt that for a really long time. Well, I've felt some love today. And thank you so much for sharing your work with us and yeah, your insight. This really gave me a lot to think about. Thank you both for wanting to have the conversation. I'm grateful. Thank you.